Life is hard. But the Bible gives us more than enough help to deal with it. This morning, we're looking at a passage which gives a lot of guidance to us about how we can make it through. We've been working our way through the epistle of James. We're in chapter 5. We only have a couple more weeks of this left. We're in 5, 7 to 12 today. Remember the first week in James 5, last week, uh, we talked about how apparently the uh, believers, the poor believers that James is writing to have been suffering under uh, the financial oppression of ruthless, unscrupulous, rich people. And so it's in light of that. And, and there's a, the passage begins with a therefore, and it's in light of that, that these things are being said by James. So let's read James 5, 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may, be not, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard about the, of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So I've split this into four sections, and I want to just walk through it, each section, and just talk about what James is saying first, and then we'll talk about some lessons to learn. So the first one is verse 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So here, I want to draw out three aspects of this passage. First of all, just waiting for the coming of the Lord. Now last week, we saw how James was warning the rich oppressors about the coming judgment. Saying that they were in the last days, and they were fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter. In verses 3 and 5. Well, James has that same day in mind now, but he's talking to the believers. And he says to them, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He says the coming of the Lord is at hand. Then the judge is standing at the door. The second theme I'd like to point out in this couple of verses, 7 and 8, is the farmer analogy, the farmer's patience. 
it takes time for crops to grow. You've got to do the work of preparing the ground and planting the seed, but then you've got to wait. It takes even more time if you're growing fruit trees, of course. And that's, his point is, that's the way life is. There's work to do, there's sowing seeds, and, but there's also waiting for results. Galatians 6.9 sounds the same note. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we don't give up. The third theme that I'd like to draw out from this couple of verses is establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. It's easy for me to think about the uh, hurricanes when you hear this uh, statement, establish your hearts. It's like, you know, there's a storm coming and you've got to prepare. And so, you know, you, you batten down the hatches, as they, as they say, or put plywood up on the windows. You prepare for the storm so that it doesn't wreak havoc upon your house and upon your lives. And that's really what James has in mind here when he says, establish your hearts. In other words, they're difficult things to deal with. There's difficult days that you will experience. So get your hearts ready. Make them stable. Fix them firmly. Prepare for the storm. Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. So get yourself ready. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, it doesn't take that long in life to realize that in times of stress and when people are burdened, when people are going through a lot of hard things, it tends to produce tensions and conflicts in relationships between one another. Stress exposes resentments, exposes differences of opinion or approach. And, uh, you know, we saw this in many churches, including ours, during COVID. Uh, where, you know, people that we thought were completely on the same page and unified, and all of a sudden these new int- issues were introduced and, every, and people had differences of the way they looked at it and perspectives on how we should view it. And it, it, the, the concept of microfissures occurred to me where, you know, if you drop a glass and it doesn't break... It may look like it's not broken, but the fact is it has created many microfissures in the glass. And that will help determine where that glass will break in the future if it's put under pressure or under stress. And the same thing with churches and families and marriages and relationships. There are microfissures, there's, there's issues and differences, and there's experiences that the people have had with one another that are there, they, you don't even recognize them. They don't even seem like they exist. But when stress is introduced and when the pressure comes and when the burden is applied, all of a sudden those things are exposed and things break. And that uh, is the same thing. And so he's urging them, don't let this happen. You know, when, this, when the stress of your lives and the oppression that you experience 
comes, don't let it cause you to turn against one another. He says two things. Don't judge one another and don't grumble against one another. Grumbling against one another, you know, like criticizing each other behind our backs. Um, it's so easy to speak negatively to a person or about a person who's not there. You know, when someone's there and you're going to see their face, we tend to be loving and polite and, and you know, humble. But when they're not there, it's so easy to talk about them negatively with a little bit of an edge. And that's what he's warning against. And then there's the judging one another. And of course, judging means thinking the worst of others, thinking that you know what's going on in their hearts, judging their motives, regarding another person with contempt, sort of writing them off, thinking that they're that they're just a bad person and, and not worthy of your, of your love or consideration, um, refusing to forgive them, acting as if you've been given the position of being their judge, a position that God alone claims. Then the next section is verse 10 and 11. Where James says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. That, that phrase, I think he's talking about the prophets. Those, we consider those prophets blessed who remain steadfast. And then he introduces another. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So I think he's in order to illustrate the point he's been making here about being steadfast in the face of suffering, he, James, cites examples of those who have been patient in suffering and how God has shown himself faithful. First, he cites the Old Testament prophets. And there are many prophets in the Old Testament. Something like 65 of them given to us by name or by specific description. But then there's whole schools of the prophets, of course, too. There's Elijah and Elisha, and Micaiah, and Obed, and Huldah in the Kings and Chronicles. But then there's 16 prophets who have their prophecies recorded in a book by their name. Now, their stories are different. And we don't know everything about all the prophets, obviously. And there's some, But there's some patterns that emerge in the stories of the prophets. First of all, they suffered opposition to their prophecies. And they were punished for it. Some were even killed. In the beginning of Jeremiah, God says through Jeremiah to Jerusalem, to the people of God, he says, your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. This was the the way, this is not just Jeremiah, this is the beginning of his ministry, but the ones who had gone before him. They had been devoured by the very people they were sent to proclaim the message to. And yet they persisted in declaring the word of the Lord in spite of the opposition. We see many examples of this. Elijah was persecuted and even hunted by Ahab and Jezebel, you probably remember. They, uh, they had killed some of his fellow prophets. 
But he refused to capitulate nonetheless. Supposedly Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh, Josiah's father. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, as you know, rather than give in. Jeremiah prophesied in a time when an enemy nation, Babylon, was not only gaining in power, but it had its eyes set on little Judah. Of course, this caused in Judah a surge of nationalistic pride and patriotism as they united in their opposition to this looming threat from, from Babylon. And you could just imagine what would happen if there was another country, especially a, country, a great, powerful country, that began to sort of prepare to come against our country and how that would cause a, a stir of nationalistic pride to stand against this threat. The problem is for Jeremiah that he was sent by God to tell the people that these foreign invaders were actually God's instruments of discipline and that therefore they ought not to resist them. You can imagine how that message went over. How he kept insisting that they should surrender. Well, it wasn't a popular message. First, Jeremiah was put in the stocks. Then King Jehoiakim shut him in prison. And then he and his scribe Baruch meticulously wrote down all of the prophecies that Jeremiah had been given and the king got hold of it and threw it in the fire and burned it back up, burned it all up and they had to start all over again. And then when Jeremiah kept prophesying about the coming judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, the princes of Zedekiah submerged him in mud in an old cistern and imprisoned him there standing in mud. Jeremiah himself said of his experience in chapter 20, I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. So because he was faithful to communicate the word of God, he was hated and despised and rejected and reproached. So, the prophets spoke the word of God to an often hostile audience. And this is why James cites the prophets as examples of those who exhibited patience and steadfastness in the face of suffering. But then James turns to another example, the example of Job. Now, one year ago, we were deeply engrossed in a sermon series on Job. So, for those of you who were here then, his experience ought to be relatively fresh on your minds. Job experienced such dark sufferings that we are shocked even to read about it. Loss of wealth and possessions, loss of all of his children, agonizing physical pain, accusations from his friends. In the end, though, Job was honored for clinging to the Lord through it all. And so James holds Job up as an inspiring example of steadfastness. 
And then finally, in this little section, in verse 11, James cites the experience that his readers have had themselves in their own lives and perhaps heard about in the lives of others that they knew where God had proven himself in times of trouble. He says, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We have all in our lives, I think, seen the Lord intervene in times of trouble. We've seen him bring comfort and strength in times of grief. We've seen him bring good things out of bad. And we've seen him show that he was in something all along, even though it seemed like he was far away. And James reminds us of this as a helpful tool to use when facing adversity. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And then the final section is verse 12, the one that doesn't seem to fit with the rest. It says, but above all, my brothers, so it's clear that he's not just starting a new subject, but he's, you know, adding to the past subject. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, you know, it's like, what is going on? What, it seems to have completely changed the subject, and yet it seems like he thinks he's on the same subject. But thoughtful, thoughtful scholars have speculated that there was probably a specific circumstance that the hearers were having which explains this. They suggest that they were, that these unscrupulous rich money lenders or that the, the rich in the earlier part of the passage were moneylenders who were squeezing these poor believers. Some of them had been unable to pay back their debts. And James is saying that they must be patient in the face of this suffering and with the ruthless tactics of these rich oppressors. But at the end, he also adds that they ought to be careful not to agree to something that they might not be able to fulfill. You know, that don't get yourself into a situation where, where uh, they have this power over you by making these kind of promises. Now, we don't know if this is correct, but it makes sense. And the important thing for us, of course, is that we honor this principle of being people of our word as well, which Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is yet one more place where James seems to be referring to things Jesus taught, his brother Jesus, and in particular in the Sermon on the Mount. That's from James, from Matthew 5, 33 to 37. So now let's look at the passage sort of big picture and see what important lessons we might take away from it. The first is just the reminder that we have here of the fact that Jesus is going to return to this earth both in judgment and to vindicate uh, his people. James mentions this in verse 7 and in verse 8 and in verse 9. He says, Be patient until the coming of the Lord in 7. Establish your hearts for the, Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand in verse 8. 
and the judges standing at the door in verse 9. Now, according to the New Testament, the return of the Lord is, and this is so important for us to realize because, you know, we have these struggles and these pains and these griefs to deal with and to face all the time in our lives. And yet, when you go to the New Testament, the, the promise that the Lord is going to return is key to being able to deal with these kinds of sufferings. And if we're trying to deal with our sufferings without regard to the coming of the Lord, the, that promise, then we're not making use of all the tools that God has given us to deal with it. And it's no wonder that we're coming up short and not finding the help that we need. The fact is that the return of the Lord is mentioned a lot more in the New Testament than it is in common Christian conversation, at least in our society. Now you go to places in the world where Christians are really suffering and they'll talk, they're talking about it a lot. And we should be too. James wants this to be an important part of our psychology. Their psychology, the ones who he's writing to, and ultimately ours. And so we need to listen to this. And we need to incorporate this into our thinking. And James says it's coming soon. It is at hand, he says. It's, uh, he's standing at the door. You know, when, you, when somebody comes to your door, right before they knock, they're standing at the door. They haven't knocked yet, but they're just about to knock. And that's the concept here. Jesus is standing at the door. He hasn't quite knocked yet, but it's soon. Now, some, you know, this was said 1980 years ago or so. Was James wrong? Well, you know, in 2 Peter 3, actually, Peter addresses this very issue of people saying, you know, he promised that it would be soon, and it's not coming soon. And he says, you have to remember that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a, as a day. But there's something else that we can be, that can be said as well. We know for sure that the day of the Lord's return is about 1980 years closer to us than it was to James. So for us, we can't just say that the Lord is going to return soon. We can say that he's going to return 1980 years sooner than what James meant by soon. And that is really soon, it seems to me. Now it might seem unrealistic to think that the Lord will come in the next 50 years or so in light of the fact that generations have expected his return and yet to no avail apparently. But clearly God wanted every generation to be expectant and if every generation says that nah, we've been waiting for this so long it's not going to happen now then obviously that generation when Christ actually does return, we'll not be ready. And he wants us all to be ready. It seems to be going on and on. But, you know, those old uh, 
our glasses where the sand's going through. We don't know what that looks like, but the sand is falling through and the time is ticking on and there's coming a time when there won't be any sand left and it will be the time of his return. Now, in light of the imminent return of Jesus, James is calling Christians to be patient in the face of present suffering. And, you know, according to the New Testament, the Christian life is all about patiently enduring suffering. This is about as far away from the world's concept of a good life as it's possible to get. Patiently enduring suffering. If you, if you want to impress your friends that, you know, you are, you are uh, live, living the good life, just tell them that you're patiently enduring suffering. That's, it's, uh, that doesn't compute to them. What isn't a major theme in the New Testament is that believers can expect life to be easy, simple, and smooth. As Isaac Watts says, we will not be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. The problem is we don't want to wait for paradise. We want heaven here and now. And people are very creative in figuring out ways to try to get heaven to be now and not have to wait for it. But that is not allowed in the Bible. The Bible keeps telling us to be patient in suffering and to wait for the day of the Lord. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There are those who claim that God's people will live lives, lives that are void of real suffering. They are not only under-reading the Bible, they're also, over, they're also underestimating the depth of human sin that's still work in, at work in us and which needs to be sanctified through trials. And so we must come to grips with the fact that when it comes to paradise, this isn't it. And we must not expect this to be it. We must wait patiently for it. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Psalm 37, 10 and 11. The next thing I'd like to talk about is the, the treasury of faith. Yet if we're going to be able to face our trials with faith and patience, we're going to need God's help. And this passage illustrates the kind of help God has provided for his people. It reminds us that difficulties are common and ought not incite panic in us, first of all. Second of all, it points to the principle of farming that you don't just plant seed in the ground in the morning and then harvest your crops that afternoon. That there is a time of patiently waiting as God sends rain to water the ground 
and in the end it might produce a, an abundance, abundant harvest for God's people. And then the passage cites examples of people in the Bible who also went through struggles like we're going through. And then it reminds us of experiences we ourselves have had and others like us have had. When God showed himself to be merciful and compassionate, experiences which we must recall to mind when we face scary times. The fact is, each one of us needs to store up a treasury of tools to bring out when trials come, and then we need to remember to bring them out in that time. We need to be able to remind ourselves of God's word and what it says and of stories in God's word which illustrate those truths. That's really what Hebrews 11 is all about in that, that faith hall of fame it, which is a list of people who did exactly what he's talking about here. They endured suffering in faith. And it's not a complete list. It's just a very short list of Bible examples. There's many more that we could add. And then we need to recall God's faithfulness in our own lives and in the lives of our family and friends and be able to remind ourselves of those things that, you know, I faced trouble before and God was faithful to get me out. Therefore, I can rest that he's going to do the same thing to me now. In other words, we need to be able to import resources from the past to deal with our circumstances in the present. This shows how we need to know the Bible, but not just intellectually. We need to know it experientially. And we need to not only use it now as if how I'm feeling today is the big issue, we need to store it up for use later. And this, of course, affects how we listen to every sermon, every Bible study, every devotion, every book we read, Christian book we read, and every time we're alone reading God's Word on our own. We're storing up a treasury of resources which we will need to face the things that we'll be going through for the rest of our lives. You know, the, the Puritans said that the most important day of life was the last day. The day that you die. And all the rest was preparation for that day when you would come to the end of your life and go into the arms of the Lord. And yet so many of us today, we don't even think about that day. And, you know, then we could come to it and be completely unprepared. But it's not only the Bible, as I said. It's also our experiences of God's faithfulness and his deliverance and the times that he's shown his mercy and compassion. You see, the experiences of life often cause us to feel like things are not going the way that they should be going. Right now, I think if we just uh, could read each other's hearts and minds 
I think it's safe to say that most of us have some things in our lives that are going on which disturb us, which concern us, which worry us, which frighten us. But God doesn't want us to live in turmoil. He doesn't want us to be like the garrison demoniac inside, even though on the outside we don't appear like we're ruffled or flustered. And that's not a healthy way to live like that. We need help. And God gives us the help that we need. His word is filled with help. And he has helped us in the past. And he wants us to be able to face our trials with peace and with grace and with faith. And our and he has proven himself so many times. There's no reason to feel like we are without the resources we need. In the end, we need to remember that we are loved. You know, in verse 11, the end of verse 11, he says, You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If we're going to go through hard things in life, and all of us will, we need to know that the one who sits on the throne of the universe is one who loves us and has compassion on us and who doesn't just say he's going to be with us, but that he allows the troubles and the tests that we go through because he loves us, because these are loving tools in his hand, because we need these things. He is chiseling us and shaping us and molding us and fashioning us so that we are prepared for that great day of his return when we will be wedded to him once and forevermore and we shall dwell together and live happily ever after. And so when we face the tribulations, the distresses, the persecutions, the dangers, when we're feeling like we're being killed all day long, we know that God's love in Christ has not been removed from us. And that's when we can feel like we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And of course all that is last part is paraphrased from Romans 8, 35 to 39. You know, for me, in the darkest moments of my life, this has been the thing that's gotten me through. And I'm sure virtually every older believer here will say amen to this point. Uh, it, you know, it, it comes down to Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Heavenly Father, what a blessing that you have given us this treasure of your word. How you care about us, that you would give us all these helps. And dear Lord, we pray that you would help us as, even as we prepare for troubles, that we might be ready on the day of the storm, that we would build our house upon the rock so that when the winds come and the waves come, we would not be blown apart 
but we might stand firm, established on the rock of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, what a blessing also that we can come to the table where Christ has called us to partake of his body and his blood. We thank you, Lord, that we can remind ourselves every single week of the precious gift that Jesus gave us in his atoning blood. And Lord, we ask that as we come to this table and partake of these gifts that you have given us to point us towards Christ and to point us toward the day when we will feast with him in paradise, we pray that you would nourish our souls even here and encourage our hearts as we trudge through this difficult life, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. We pray in his dear name. Amen.